a walkthrough of the Felina Bug, a dark web bust, and air tag murder. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth, and he is Paul Ducklin. G'day, folks. And Paul, I have an exciting tech history tidbit for you this week. This week in 1822. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. If it's 19th century, it's going to be different sentient, isn't it? I'm all ears, Doug. Hit me (laughs) with your rhythm stick. This is tech history. Well, don't spoil the... (laughs) No spoilers here. This week in 1822, Charles Babbage proposed the Difference Engine in a paper to the Royal Astronomical Society. The small prototype Difference Engine took Babbage three years to build and was powered by a hand crank to crunch numbers. The British government was interested in the machine, but although the design itself was feasible, metalworking at the time wasn't precise enough to mass-produce the machines economically, so the project was scrapped in 1842. Babbage went on to develop the analytical engine, which made the difference engine obsolete anyway. But early computing, I mean, early, early, early computing. Yes, and of course, that's where Ada Lovelace comes in, figuring out how to write programs and and inventing the idea of subroutines for general purpose computers of this sort, even though they didn't actually ever build the computer, because as you say, they couldn't. And the problem, Doug, was backlash. The fact that gears never mesh perfectly, so there's a little bit of slop every time you introduce this gear driving the next one. And that backlash is cumulative when gears drive gears that drive gears. He could build diminutive ones, but anything more ambitious, you start turning the handle and it just kind of locks up. Yeah, and I think it was not until the 1990s that a difference engine, working difference engine, was finally built. There's one in the London Science Museum. It's a glorious thing to see operating. Absolutely beautiful motions in it. But ironically, it took digital computer-controlled manufacturing to build (laughs) the mechanical, electromechanical difference engine, because now we have electric motors to drive it, it didn't need steam. We needed the analytical engine to help us start thinking about how at some unknown future time we might build digital computers. And then when we built the digital computers, we had the precision we needed to go back and build the computer that started it all. Exactly. Well, that was uh, computing's past. And if we let's move up to the present, and we're still talking about this Felina bug that was present in the Microsoft Office suite. And Paul, you're going to do a demo. You're going to break down how it works and uh, what you can do to protect yourself from it. So tell us a little bit about what's happening um, on Thursday or now or already happened, depending on when the podcast listener is listening. Yes, I was determined to squeeze this into the podcast because I'm very pleased with the, with the demo that I've got together. And there's a fighting chance that if you listen to the podcast when it comes out on Thursday, you'll be in plenty of time to register for the the live demo, which is 3 p.m. UK time on Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022. Unfortunately, if you're up early enough to listen to the podcast, it's probably because you're on the other side of the world and it'll be the middle of the night when the demo happens. But you can but try, Doug. 
it, it will be available to view later. And if there are enough people from Asia Pacific or Hawaii and places like that, we can always do it again. But the idea was let's look into this whole Felina thing, even though it's sort of considered done and dusted. And yet there's still a lot of interest in knowing how does it work? What can you do about it? And more importantly, what sort of mindset does a cyber criminal have to have to find out something like this in the first place? What is it that makes a feature that I can't really think that anyone actually wanted? Hey, I'm in the middle of browsing a website. I I suddenly need to run a diagnostic tool. Like, I don't think people were clamoring for that feature somehow. With a feature that no one really needed. Like, hey, when you're running the diagnostic tool, why not allow all kinds of secret scripting to go on? What is it that make crooks have that mindset to go, hey, let's try and put a feature that nobody wanted, combine it with a feature that nobody really needed, and construct an exploit that no one really expected? Yeah, it's reminiscent of the uh, the Google Docs bug, which so- someone figured out if you type and, 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 it would <laughs> cause all sorts of problems. Except this one's, a li- this one's got a little bit, uh, the consequences are potentially worse for this one. Yes, but you're dead right. I remember you were fascinated when we spoke about that on the podcast. Yeah, like, how do you figure this out? Going, but also you were really annoyed because it was a cloud thing and Google fixed it quickly. Yeah, you couldn't take it offline (laughs) like I've done with Felina and go, let's examine it. You're going like, I I would have loved to have seen that. And it wasn't just and 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 was it? It was you had to have and full stop and full stop period. And when you found and 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 and, what motivates people to go? Well, it probably works with but, 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 but as well. Yes, it does. You can understand that. But what motivates someone to go, I know, I want to find all the words in the dictionary that it works with. (laughs) And as you say, sometimes just because it's there, like climbing high mountains, is enough of a reason for people to look for anomalies. But in just as many cases, if a crook can find it, they can potentially turn it into dollar large value. For anyone who's not able to see the demo, what's what's kind of the most important takeaway you want to leave people with? It really is understanding that you can have something that doesn't feel like it really is a bug or a vulnerability on its own, and you can combine it with something that doesn't quite feel like a bug on its own, like the business of launching this script from the command line that you don't need to. It kind of feels like these two things shouldn't meet, yet they can, and they do, and they will. And there are a few things that you need to learn as well. I want to make it absolutely clear that this isn't only about documents you might receive in email and then decide to open. As we mentioned before, it works in the preview pane, Doug. So if you're just browsing through a directory with File Explorer or looking through a list of things like emails, when Windows says, oh, I'll just try and give you an idea of what the title page of that document looks like, so I'm not going to do anything dangerous with it, nevertheless it does. This one comes in Word files, but does not require macros, which a lot of people think are the beginning and the end of document-based malware delivery. That like, if it doesn't have macros, then it can't have code. And if it doesn't have code, it can't do bad stuff, few we're safe. So that's another takeaway, that sometimes attacks unfold in exactly the way you did not expect, or even worse, in a way that you expected was secure. 
All right. I am looking forward to that. I, for one, will be there at 10 a.m. Eastern time, 3 o'clock p.m. UK time on June 16th. So check that out if you're able to join live. Great. If not, look for the recording afterward. And uh, let's keep things light with uh, an AirTag murder. Oh, dear, Doug. Yes, this is... It's one of those stories that's, well, terribly sad because it involved allegedly unlawful killing and a sorry situation. But I wrote it up for Naked Security because I thought it was an important and interesting insight into how complicated and diverse even things that you might imagine are open and shut cases can turn out to be for law enforcement today. There's an air tag involved somewhere in this case. I don't think it's pivotal to the case, yet because they came across it in the process of questioning witnesses, seizing a car, a person was run over, apparently deliberately, seizing the car and all that stuff, the cops came across this fact that an air tag might be involved. Now suddenly they have to do a whole load of dotting their I's and crossing their T's for evidential purposes to do with air tags along with all the other stuff that they need to deal with in crimes of this sort involving violence. Basically, bloke got run over by a car um, on purpose, it seems. Uh, so, obviously, spare a thought for the victim's family, spare a thought for the person who was driven to do what they did, but also spare a thought for law enforcement in the fact that there are so many moving parts these days to the evidence in an investigation and they have to be old school cops and new school cops all at the same time so as the story goes this uh, lady thought that her partner was cheating she hid an apple air tag in the back of his car uh, she told him that she's getting ready to kick him out he leaves and then she texts him and to say i know where you are she drives to the pub that she thinks he's in well, she goes in the pub he's with another woman the three of them cause a ruckus and get kicked out of the pub. Uh, she drives off, sees him in the parking lot, and then he, he is, she runs him over and he suffocates. So a lot of this stuff has nothing to do with an air tag, but the, the an air tag is part of the story and as part of the tracking part of the story. So if we could go over, so there are some fail safes with these air tags is for this express purpose. So you know if someone's tracking you with an air tag that isn't yours, right? <laughs> Well, Doug, it's probably best to avoid words like fail-safe and know that you're being tracked. But there are some things that Apple has done, and I guess other vendors do similar things. Uh, so this is not unique to Apple or to the AirTag. That's probably the best-known one in the market. There are some things that you can do that give somebody who's being stalked or tracked without knowing it a fighting chance of detecting it. But they're not fail-safe because the way the technology works means they kind of can't be. And the first one is that, well, an AirTag that hasn't had a little hello, I'm in your vicinity signal from its owner's iPhone for some suspiciously long time will start bleeping. That way, if you actually lose an AirTag that you wanted to keep track of, it will bleep and you go, oh, it's gone down the back of the sofa. Or if one starts bleeping and you think, oh, someone else left this behind by accident or by design. If it's your AirTag and you're using it to track that it's with you and not lost, then it makes sense to assume that the AirTag will receive a signal from your device once in a while. And if it doesn't, 
then it means either it's genuinely lost, in which case bleep so someone might find it, or you lost it on purpose so you could track someone, so bleep so they know it's there. Problem A, I imagine if you stuff it down the back seat of a car, which is where she's supposed to have put it, it might be pretty hard to hear it while you're driving along. And of course, as you mentioned the last time we discussed these on the podcast, there's a bit of a grey market for second-hand air tags. Oh, must sell, doesn't work properly, the speaker's broken. Twice the normal retail price. Uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't make a joke in a story like this, but you know what I mean, that they're not selling it because the speaker broke, they broke the speaker so they could sell it. So you might not hear it, and you might not be able to hear it. The second thing that air tags do is that if you are an AirTag person yourself, or if you aren't an AirTag person, but you do have an AirTag tracking app with no AirTags registered to it, then your app can, in theory, tell you, hey, this AirTag's been following you around. That's a bit weird. You might want to try and find out where it is because it's somebody else's. Either they genuinely lost it, in which case you want to hand it back to them, or they genuinely hid it so that it would go along with you. And the problem with that, if you're not an AirTag user yourself, you might not bother to check for the alerts. And then there's a problem with both of those techniques, particularly where maybe two people are in a relationship and A decides they actually want to keep their eye on B, as seems to have happened in this case. If you do meet up regularly, and you do spend time together, then that air tag that's hidden around your person or in your property or in your backpack or whatever is going to be within range of their phone as a natural side effect of real life. And that, of course, is enough to suppress the warnings. So they aren't fail-safes and you can't know you're being tracked just by using the beeping or the, the warnings from the app. Okay, so the way I understand... Uh, how this technology works is let's say it's put in my car. I'm an Android user, so I don't have an iPhone, but it's in my car. I park at the bar. I just need someone else with an iPhone, any iPhone to walk past my car. And that will reveal the location of that AirTag to whoever's tracking me. But is there something I can do as a non-iPhone user to try to detect these Bluetooth trackers? Yes, that's kind of how it works. And as for can you generically track and monitor Bluetooth devices and therefore avoid this kind of circumstance? The answer is yes. You can certainly do Bluetooth tracking by with a mobile phone or there are even special dongles. You can buy little USB things. Adafruit make a fantastic one. I think it's called the Blue Fruit. And that's, that's a hacked with special firmware Bluetooth detector that can monitor all the Bluetooth around you. So it's great for security operations, for penetration testers, let's be honest, for snoops. Therefore, if there is a rogue Bluetooth AirTag in your vicinity, it will show up. The problem is it can be really hard to find rogue tracking devices. Remember, they might not be AirTags. How to find that from amongst all the noise can be quite difficult because if you ever have run a Bluetooth monitoring program, particularly if you live in an urban area, you will probably be unsurprised yet at the same time astonished just how much Bluetooth noise there is around you. It's a great exercise to go through if you're interested in a little bit of a hacking challenge or you want to learn more about Bluetooth in particular, BLE, Bluetooth 
low energy, but it's not like reading a book of exam question answers. <laughs> it's more like reading the textbook that might help you find your way to those answers if you put in the hard yards. All right. Sad story, and something tells me we haven't heard the last of these types of stories. Sadly, I think you're right, Doug. Yeah. A uh, sort of non-sad story. There's a uh, nice little dark web takedown in the, in the past week, Paul. Yes, this isn't the most meaningful law enforcement operation ever done because they weren't able to seize the actual servers, but they did see seize the domain names and redirect them to websites that say, hello, this is the FBI and the US Department of Justice and the Treasury Department and the Cyprus Police. We've seized these domains. You jolly well know you shouldn't be here. Watch out. And it relates to an online, if you like, a dark web market called SSNDOB Market. And the amazing hmm. thing is that although SSN stands for Social Security Number, which is uniquely American, and although DOB stands for Date of Birth and is uniquely Anglophone, I bet you there's not a person in the world who wouldn't work out what SSNDOB market was. Basically, what it's telling you is, because everyone knows about SSNs even if they don't have one, and everyone knows about DOBs because you see those initialisms and acronyms a lot around cybersecurity discussion, it's pretty obvious that these guys were selling stolen, personally identifiable information. And Doug, according to the Department of Justice, in the press release they put out, these guys had actually, over the last few years, made more than 19 million of your United States dollars, if you don't mind, wow. selling information. We don't know quite how much. I don't think it was just SSNs and DOBs, which only go so far on their own. There was plenty of other stuff they had for sale as well, but apparently they sold personal data for up to 24 million people. Hmm. So it's good to see that something is able to be done. It's just a pity that, as we've discussed before on the podcast many times, one of the strengths, stroke weaknesses of the dark web is that the server can't tell who the client is and the client can't tell who, or more importantly, where the server is. That makes it hard for law enforcement to work backwards, even if they do seize a server, to work out who is using the site and it makes it hard for them to go forwards, even if they get someone who says, hey, I found this site, see if you can deal with it. But these crooks were operating regular domain names, if you like, they're sort of, I hate to have to say this, but it's like, you know, sort of their marketing arm that helped people find where to go on the dark web. Uh, at least they were able to get a court order that moved those domain names under the control of the United States government. All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, that may still be unraveling. Let's hope that in amongst this intelligence gathering that allowed them to do the domain seizure, there's a bit more that lets them take the next step towards identifying who these crooks are and, just as importantly, exactly where they're operating from. All right, very good. Let us now, uh, at the end of our show, hear from one of our readers. Back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a new uh, delivery scam with a professional feel uh, involving the company Every. 
You gave them 95%, if I remember, Doug. I did, You were yes. quite open-eyed at that one. But it was pixel perfect, not a mistake in sight, except the domain name. And even that had the word every, the name of the company, in it. And it goes deeper. Uh, Naked Security Reader Ant A writes, I can't help but think there's a little more to this. I received this scam and batted it away, not quite immediately, as it was pretty good. And the timing of the receipt was interesting as it was in within a few hours of receiving a parcel from Every. Most services I use do not use Every. The postal and other couriers in this area have it all nailed down, so exposure to Every is little, if not non-existent. I'm not one of those skies falling type of guys, but my spider senses were certainly tingling after the follow-up. Paul, what say you? Yes, that is an excellent observation. And I think the only way to respond to it is that, in this case, the obvious answer might not and probably isn't the correct one. Hmm. So I think what this reader is suggesting is that the crooks must have known. It seems perfectly reasonable to make that inference, doesn't it? I use this company... It's the first time I've ever used them. And within hours or even a couple of days, it kind of seems unbelievable. I get the first scam I've ever had that references that company that I'd never even heard of before. What's the chance of that happening? And unfortunately, you kind of have to think of it like the lottery. In the UK, the lottery is, I think they draw six numbers from 49 balls. So the arithmetic is quite simple. If you pick number six numbers randomly, you have a one in 14, one for million chance of picking the numbers that come out. It's simple probability theory. And one in 14 million means, Doug, that basically what's the chance that anyone could ever win the lottery? Yet most weeks, one, two or several people win. Sometimes the prize gets split between multiple people. And the answer is you're thinking about what's the chance that I will win the lottery versus <laughs> what's the chance that anybody might win the lottery. Because they generally send out these scams in vast numbers, it's as though you're comparing you buying one lottery ticket with the lottery company selling more than 14 million lottery tickets every week. So sooner or later, almost anybody who regularly gets home deliveries will happen to receive a scam that just happens to align more believably than they would ever have expected. Just once in a while, the planets align. And if you're the person looking up at them, you go, wow, they must have lined up for me. Well, they did, but it happened by chance, not by design. Having said that, Doug, leaks do happen. And if indeed sure. there had been a leak and the crooks did know, then I'm certain that would be well within their capabilities to go, right, let's put these at the top of the list because we can target those people. The problem is that because you bought from Company X and then you got a scam relating to Company X, you can't reliably point a finger at X and say, oh, you must have had a leak. So you can't use it to criticise them. That would be unfair. The flip side of that is if you buy from X and then you get a scam relating to X the next day, it doesn't mean that it's not a scam. 
So it works both ways or doesn't work both ways, unfortunately. And it's just vital to remember that. The laws of big numbers mean that this kind of coincidence is not merely possible, it's actually likely, almost necessary. All right. Great explanation. Thank you, Aunt A, for that comment. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.